welcome to the Time Shifters podcast. This show discusses film and television from the long and recent past as well as the news and events surrounding them. We thank you for tuning in and would love to hear from you. Follow the link in the show notes to all our social media and websites, or send us an email to timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com. Everyone, and welcome back to the Time Shifters Podcast, episode three of the Year of the Time Traveler. Uh, this is Christopher, and I'm here with Tom, as always. Howdy, sir. I've not lost you in the time stream anywhere. <laughs> it's getting a little timey-wimey <laughs> on this end. We have, unfortunately, some very sad news to start the show with. Yes. No more than a day or two after our episode on the Time Machine dropped... We got the news that Yvette Mimo passed away at the age of 80. I felt almost really guilty for having just dropped the episode. <laughs> yeah, the, it, well, you know, we're in the year of the time, time traveler, and it just seemed odd, the timing. <laughs> yes, it was a little bit of a gut punch. I really was when I pulled that, I saw that up like, no, no, not now. <laughs> for for those that need a reminder, she played Weena in the Time Machine. So the the primary and I only one of really two women in the entire movie, other than the extras. And this is another case where an actress I knew very little about her, unfortunately, until I read the articles that go along with her passing. I knew her best from the time machine and of course of uh, 1979's The Black Hole. Those were pretty much my two uh, Yvette Momo films that I always, I think I've seen her in one other one and I can't think of the name. She did so much more and there's so much that I need to go and look up for her. There was a, particularly a film that she actually wrote and starred in called Hit Lady that was about a female assassin. Really? Yeah. I've, it was a it was a, a 1974 ABC uh, television movie. Huh. Damn shame it didn't fit in last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry that we couldn't have gotten to that. Uh, that would have been really interesting. Yeah, she did so many other films. Um, Where the Boys Are in 1960, A Light in the Piazza 1962, Toys in the Attic 63. And she apparently was a very interesting woman and kept a very private life. She was not one to, um, she did not seek out the limelight outside of working in the films. And then when she kind of got tired of the movie biz and felt like they weren't giving her the role she wanted, that she just retired. She just walked away and she stayed very private. She didn't do a lot of interviews. Uh, there was a, a quote in here from a, a Washington Post interview from 79. She said, you know, there are tribes in Africa who believe that a camera steals a little part of your soul. In a way, I think that's true about living your private life in public. It takes something away from your relationships. It cheapens them. Very interesting uh, point of view, and I definitely understand. You get a lot of photographers taking pictures of you, and now everyone's got a piece of you. You know, there's a picture of you somewhere, and that that is no longer yours. That is someone else's. I definitely see where she's coming from there. Yeah, it's that... Well, it's the objectification of a life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go and look up a lot of her other films that I'm just not as familiar with. I never gave her a, 
a whole lot of credit for being a talented actress, but I only had two true examples. So I think I, I feel like I owe it to her <laughs> to, uh, to go and seek out some of these other films. Well, no, now that you've mentioned that made-for-TV one, uh, I'm actually kind of fascinated, especially given the topic, the, the notion of 1974 and uh, it being about a hit woman. Mm-hmm. A remorseful assassin, assassin, as it's described, mm-hmm. yes. And supposedly, she may have actually made television history when she guest starred on NBC's Dr. Kildare. Oh, yeah. Supposedly, she was the first woman to show her navel on television. Oh, my God. <laughs> Stop it, you're objectifying. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say she made history by appearing in a two-part episode of The Love Boat. <laughs> did she? Apparently she did. Wow. A, a, a special two-part episode because it was a Hong Kong cruise and The Love Boat didn't go there. Oh, okay. Very sad news. Very just terrible timing coming right off of just talking about her on the uh, on the time machine. Very unfortunate. I mean, that was a very early role for her. She was only 18 years old when she did that. We, I think we talked about that in the uh, in the episode. We did, yeah. Certainly a very beautiful woman and obviously very talented, and I'm looking forward to going and um, seeing some of the work that she did that I am just not familiar with. No, absolutely. And I will always, of course, still revisit the ones I am familiar with when it comes to the time machine and the black hole. Yeah, the black hole usually requires an occasional watch just for fun yes absolutely uh, i believe that is the only news the only thing i had that i wanted to, to talk about unless you there was anything else that you wanted to mention no i don't think i have anything going into this week well great we'll go ahead and take a break when we come back we will take a look at 1989's millennium Podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drunked up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary, and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. DOA 35 Heavy, could you give me your location? Minneapolis, we are currently heading zero. DOA 35, turn to heading. My God. Jesus, down. Go down. For Flight 35. We are going down. It was the end. Afraid. Or was it? Walk towards the light. What unusual facts have you developed in your investigation? This crash has been crazy from the start. 
is there anything odd? Going backwards. I'm afraid I still don't know what you're driving at. I'm simply looking for the inexplicable. I usually find it. You're endangering a project that's bigger than you can imagine. I know damn well we can't change the past. Time travels. They don't want to be found. Then you are from the future. About a thousand years. Sherman, send the gate. Once in a thousand years comes an adventure like this. We've been expecting you. Millennium. Millennium was directed by Michael Anderson and stars Chris Christopherson and Cheryl Ladd. Millennium is based on a 1977 short story, Air Raid, by John Varley. Varley started work on a screenplay in 1979 and released the expanded story in book-length form in 1983 as Millennium. The plot here, uh, National Transportation Safety Board investigator Bill Smith, Chris Christopherson, is called on to investigate the collision and crash of two U.S. commercial airliners. Weird evidence left behind deepens the mystery of the crash. A thousand years in the future, the human race is sterile and on the brink of extinction. Using a massive time gate, a team has been traveling back in time and kidnapping the passengers of doomed airlines and replacing them with biological facsimiles. When one of the team loses a piece of their equipment on the crashing plane, it threatens to create a time paradox. Louise Baltimore, played by Cheryl Ladd, has to travel back again to try and secure the device before time unravels and the future is destroyed before they can save the human race. I had not seen this film in quite some time. I believe I watched this, it would have had to be when it came to home video VHS days, so early 90s. Yeah, that's about when I would have had to have seen this. Lord knows it could have been one of our blockbuster rentals. I'm almost positive it was a blockbuster <laughs> rental for me. <laughs> yeah. For, yeah, 89, 90, 92. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think this was past the mom and pop days, so definitely blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> blockbuster video. Wow, what a difference. I remember, I've actually, uh, I remember reading the book, oh, yeah? the uh, full-length book that uh, Varley published. Um, probably came out about the same time as the film. Although uh, oh, it said it was uh, published in 83, but I probably read it closer to when the film was uh, released. Okay. I'm sure the book had a, that stamp. Now a major motion picture, right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> from, from Walden Bookstore. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely it would have been from Walden's. That had been about that time. <laughs> that's, that's, that was my bookstore of choice at the time. The book and the film follow themselves pretty closely. Uh, there's a lot in the book, not in the film, but it's not important to the plot. There's no plot elements that I can remember in the book that wasn't put out in the film. Okay. A pretty rare occurrence, actually, when it comes to making a movie. Not sure if that's saying much for the book, though. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it strangely more than I think I should, because you're right. It, like the film... It's a little bit of a non sequitur, you know, it just, it, it's not a memorable thing. And no, and yet you, you remember it because they essentially do it twice in the same film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I think you already posted this to even some of the socials uh, about this, but uh, yeah, I, I had to agree when you, you made the comments, with, which is this is a film with really good ideas, just didn't really do them justice. Yeah, I, I summed it up with good good plot, bad cast. Yes. Uh, no offense to Cheryl Ladd, I know you're a fan. Uh, <laughs> I, I am a fan, and uh, and... But let, let's be honest, I'm a fan if you had just turned the volume off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't the acting to which I was mostly a fan of Cheryl Ladd. <laughs> Understood. A lovely person, lovely woman. Uh, but yeah, no, she just doesn't. I'm not sure if my problem in this movie is even so much with Cheryl Ladd as it is with Chris Christopherson. The phrase lack of gravitas. <laughs> Uh, comes to comes to mind really when you talk about the entire cast on this film. There is nobody in this movie that just says, "Bam, I am here. I'm telling this story." Yeah, because uh, at no point do any of these characters make me care what they do next. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I I. I I was there when this movie came out. I am aware of it. I remember watching it on video or whatever. Uh, but if I didn't know all that, you'd have a hard time convincing me this wasn't made for TV. Yeah, it has that feel. It is definitely, was it a PG rating? I believe so. Yeah, I don't, I PG-13. can't think of any. PG-13. Okay, that's true, because the PG-13 rating started up in the mid-80s, right? Yeah, that's a direct result of uh, Temple of Doom and Gremlins. Yes. I think this would have been a PG, if the, if not for the PG-13. I honestly think you could have easily made this a PG film. Um, maybe there was some language. There's no nudity. There's no gore. There must have been just a little bit of language. Or maybe it's just the, the thematic elements I, I don't know what puts it up in that pg-13 realm possibly at, at least for 89 perhaps the uh the hotel sequences yeah you see i mean cleavage. you don't see anything there's not really uh nudity but it, it would be considered sexual content right yeah and at, at the time i'm guessing you know they were still hammering out what is a PG-13? I think some films probably got saddled with that that didn't deserve it. You have to remember that the PG-13 rating was reactionary because mm-hmm. because Temple of Tomb and, and Gremlins, they really did push the threshold of PG. Yes. <laughs> but those movies rightfully uh, probably launched PG-13. They did. They were not for small children. And let me be clear, no one under the age of 13, and frankly, not many people over the over the age of 13, would find this film terribly interesting, and they'd actually be bored out of their minds. So, <laughs> Yeah, so may, may, maybe they thought it on an intellectual front. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't want to do this to six-year-olds. But since we're, t- I mean, this is about time travel, and we got to talk about the time travel element in this. Uh, the idea of the future coming back in order to save the farther future mm-hmm. was an interesting premise. I talked about, and uh, we reviewed on the show years ago with Matt and I, the film Free Jack had a very similar uh, premise 
they were stealing people right at their point of death to use, but in that instance, they were using the bodies for spare parts for the rich and famous. Okay. See, I'm not very familiar with Free Jack, uh, but while watching this, I had a very 12 Monkeys vibe. The notion that a not-so-well-off future would travel to the past to improve the future. I find it interesting, and I think it's almost too realistic that, you know, science gets to the point that they can create a time machine, and that's where they put all their efforts and money and research rather than actually trying to do something to save the environment of which they've created. (laughs) No, we're going to create... Yeah, yeah, we've got the global warming and the oceans are drying up and, uh, you know, we got extinctions all over the place. But what we're going to do is build a time machine so we can go back... I'm going to stop you on that front. I, I, I know exactly how you feel about that. Uh, <laughs> and I get that. But this this comes from almost the same uh, thought process of why do we have a space program when we can't feed everybody and all that. The idea, I, I'm going to give them this in the notion that perhaps they were attacking things on multiple fronts and the technology for uh, time travel was thought up by some super genius in that area while the others were lagging behind in what they could get accomplished. Okay. Um, <laughs> just throwing it out there. I mean, you can do things on multiple fronts, and this was one of the ones that was showing promise in the time that it came around. All right. Uh, uh, I'm trying to give it some credit here because it's not, <laughs> it's not got a lot of legs to stand on. I thought it was interesting. I did not remember. I thought that they were taking the the humans, the humans, they were taking the, the people from the past and bringing them to the future. And I thought it was more for more immediate needs. I thought that's how they were keeping the human race going in that time. Mm-hmm. I did not remember that they were actually just sort of storing them and planning on then shooting them further into the future, assuming that they were uh, going to die off. Right. And they were going to send them into the future where the Earth had regenerated itself effectively and having them start life anew just to save the human race. That was an aspect I did not remember. So I thought that was an interesting idea. I don't know how feasible it was. I, I'm assuming they had a better plan than what they actually ended up having to do at the end of this film. Right, yeah, because, I mean, that if that was always truly the intent of this version of the human society, that is altruistic on a level that... I don't think you can accredit to humanity, especially a humanity <laughs> that ruined the planet in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where was where was the guy saying, "No, I'm going. I'm going to the future." Yeah, that that was the part that was a hard pill to swallow in all of this is is like we accept our fate, so we're going to do what we can to carry on the human race in a date where none of us will get to participate. But you definitely get the feeling at the end of the film, they just start throwing people through the gate to the future 
and you get the feeling that they don't really know what's there. I, I would definitely have liked something in this film that would lead us to believe that someone's been there and set something else up, you know, a, a, a the groundwork of a new society or something, uh, building supplies, uh, anything other than just, yeah, we're not sure if it's going to be there or not. Good luck. <laughs> How do you know you haven't just thrown them to the earth as the sun swells to a red giant? I mean, right. <laughs> well, yeah, that was actually very dissatisfying. Like they, they didn't have to take us there to say that that's what they had done. Apparently, I don't know if it was in, in the international release or some of the overseas somewhere. There was a scene shot that had Chris Christopherson and Cheryl Ladd's characters going through the gate and ending up in like a uh, and seeing them in, in effectively a Garden of Eden situation. Right. And that was excised at some point. I don't remember if it was originally scripted or if it was actually filmed and released in other audience, you know, international releases or not. I don't remember now, but that would be a little too cheesy. I don't think I, that's not what I wanted. I, that's what I assumed happened anyway, but I would just like to think that they would have done something else to help these people along other than just random people from an aircraft and hoping they can fend for themselves and some, <laughs> some wilderness <laughs> who could have been on any of these aircraft that they have stolen people from what makes them qualified to build the future <laughs> I mean, right you could have essentially and not that they did necessarily but i mean it could just be a whole bunch of people on a field trip for all i mean an airplane's a bus <laughs> right it is just random it's random people going in the same direction. So so there's no guarantee that you're saving anything. You might have just prolonged the human race by five years until they all die off because they don't know how to feed themselves. And think of all the other uh, problems that you, you have because they're taking people from all times, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, different points of the future. So... You fling a bunch of people from the 60s and throw them together with a bunch of people with the 80s, there might be some conflict uh, between a few of those uh, lifestyles. <laughs> Without any context, you're carrying along the sum total of human baggage. <laughs> yes. Yes, and all piling into one spot, yes. Yeah, and hoping for the best. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the thing, too, when they finally reveal that they've essentially put these people all in stasis. So they've done nothing to prepare them for what they're about to do to them. No, they're literally kidnapping them and, I guess, seemingly thinking that they should thank them for saving their lives. But there's a few of those people that are probably going to say, I would have rather died than have to build my own home out of trees and bark you know <laughs> right and then but because we get that reveal where the the people that they've taken have essentially just been in storage till till it's time to send them to their future and now we're being rushed so they release them from their stasis and then just start barking orders <laughs> at them uh, to go toward a light and Everybody just does it. 
Right. I'm like, that's not really how that would have gone. <laughs> no. You'd have gotten a whole lot. What the hell is going on? You would have got that, and that wasn't e- that wasn't present even when they first pull him off the airline. Mm-hmm. And you see him going down the gangway, and you see their duplicates, their facsimiles going back up the other way. Nope, no one panics. No, where, where's the guy that tries to attack one of the guards and gets shot down? I, everyone's too complacent. Yeah, which really kind of takes you out of it. Uh, mm-hmm, it does because this isn't. This is a really kind of cool premise, and and as you said. Great plot. Uh, just it didn't. It didn't have the star power, and it didn't have the the proper storytelling to get it there. Uh, and and it's that kind of stuff that that lack of detail to what would real people do if they were in this situation? And if you don't find some mechanism to suggest why you can pull this off, it does. It kind of ruins it a little bit. Tell you another thing that kind of ruined it for me. I think it was a mistake of the plot. And this is, I'm almost curious enough to go and try to dig up the book to see if this is something they they switched when it went to the screenplay. The one plane in the 1960s where they, they take people from, and there's one survivor, a young kid, mm-hmm. a teenager. I thought at the time this kid we would come to find out would be the professor who's investigating all these crashes. Yeah. But for some reason they decided, no, no, that's Chris, Chris, Chris Christopherson's character. That's Bill Smith. That wasn't necessary. You don't need that to be a motivation. I think, I feel like they gave it to him to be the motivation to be, to want to go into the NTSB. Yeah, but you don't you don't need that. You don't need someone's motivation to go into the the safety board, you know, investigator. You don't need the motivation like that. You need someone's motivation to be going to crash sites, being a college professor, to be an astro, you know, a theoretical physicist, and going to crash sites for some odd reason. That's where you need the motivation. And to show up and ask odd questions at press conferences. Yeah, exactly. That should have been him. That The survivor of a plane who experienced something that he can't understand. He doesn't, you know, suddenly people show up out of, you know, out of nowhere with a blue light and some weird devices left behind and all that. That should have been a memory of the professors. And that was his motivation for being in this film and being in this story. It would have better explained why he was in possession of a device he didn't know what it was in the first place. Yes. Like, when they decided not to make him that guy, it completely fell apart why he had the thing in the first place. Yeah, it's a good point, because he dropped it to the ground. Right. So how did he end up with a part of it? Not even all of it. I, yeah. Left It left questions. Yeah, because, I mean, the the kid on board had it in his hand and then dropped it. But it would make more sense if the survivor of the plane is the one that still has it. Yeah, he had put it in his coat pocket. Which which character had it? Oh, like, what the hell? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, because it, it, there was some flimsy excuse as to why the professor had it. But, I mean, wh- wh- why would you have sought it out to begin with? Yeah, the professor just, he he found it in the crash. 
we we he found a piece of it or something in in the in a crash because why was he investigating that one? I don't know. Well, not, uh, not to yeah. mention he'd have been what in his twenties, tops. Right. Yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah. So make him a little younger and make him the survivor. Right. <laughs> you know I mean, well, quite frankly, uh, given the the age of the crash uh, and the fact we didn't define the age of the guy in the first place, you didn't need even need to do that. You just say that was the guy that was survived. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. I mean, making Chris Christopherson the survivor that was just completely ridiculous. What did you think of the uh, Exposition Tron Five Thousand? Uh, <laughs> uh, robot Sherman. Interestingly enough, uh, as soon as Sherman showed it up back up on screen, I'm like, that's where, uh, like, I, I could still remember this particular robot. Oh, really? I really could, but, like, anytime I'd either see a picture or even think about this particular robot, I couldn't place what movie he was in. <laughs> That's so when funny. it's like, oh my god, this is where you're from. <laughs> We're gonna go back to what you started with, since I uh, I, I tried to not un- unravel why time travel might be a a, a thing, but again, you, you've built a fully functional humanoid robot mm-hmm. who clearly even has essentially some level of emotion. Still can't figure out how to fix the environment. <laughs> so that whole attacking on multiple fronts still didn't apparently occur to them to maybe, I don't know, clean an ocean, filter some air. <laughs> yeah. Another uh, error in the plot. Paradoxes are a big deal. Yes. Uh, because if, when they create a paradox, they actually get, and I think this was actually kind of a neat little idea, time quakes. Mm-hmm where they see actually coming up the timeline and it supposedly things change each time it happens, but usually just very minor changes. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly worried about creating a paradox. I mean, the whole idea of the stunner and Bill Smith finding one and him seeing uh, the team that comes back to try to retrieve it and everything. That's a big deal about the whole paradox thing, but that happened. So they want to go back and create a paradox, by making it not happen. I mean, that's the... the <laughs> this, this, oh, excuse me? And now, now you're into the part where we talked about earlier, <laughs> where time travel can make a, an experience bumpy all the way around, because without really knowing what that would be like, uh, when movies try to explain it and they kind of over-explain it... <laughs> huh? <laughs> Yeah, I, di- I didn't get that. I mean, the most s- minor things like someone dropping their, their, their stunner device or whatever creates a, a, a minor quake. So they decide they need to go back and stop Bill from being in the warehouse or in the hangar mm-hmm. to be to discover the team trying to retrieve it. But it's like, well, hasn't that now happened? So you going back, that shouldn't even be a conversation that they are having. The idea of going back and stopping them from being there. Right. Like, because the way they chose to tell this film, th- this particular story. Um, yeah, you make an interesting point, especially since his seeing it made a little time quake and nothing seemed to change radically. 
They were all still them. I mean, Cheryl Ladd's character flat out points out after that particular time quake, we're all still here. You're still you. But then they go down this road because Chris Christopherson's character has said that he recognized her. He's calling her out by name. So that means she's been there before. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing this in a different, a, a, a little further along in the time. Um, yeah, well, and I guess that's it, is if they didn't go back, then that would create an even larger paradox, because obviously she did go back. <laughs> right, so the part we're missing, and, and this is where it gets into sloppy storytelling, is, which is funny, because the part we haven't discussed yet is, uh, we kind of alluded to it, this is a movie where they tell the story twice. Yeah. Semi sort of from different perspectives, but not really because we still spend too much time with all sets of characters that you don't get the sense of it's just really, okay, this is her perspective on this trip versus his perspective from the other time. Yeah, that was something that made the film too long, mm -hmm. definitely slowed it down because you're really only dealing with two people. Right. And so you're seeing it from another perspective, but we're seeing it from the same two people from in the same scenes. So you're just moving the camera and it's the same scene. So it's not even, you're, you're literally, the perspective is the movement of the camera. You're not seeing it from, at, at no point are the scenes as they are played out different moments right from what we saw before so you've got two you got two people interacting and so we're just seeing the same two people interact again right is that really necessary <laughs> they didn't use the concept correctly because there wasn't distinct delineation between what we were getting out of each because if you're gonna do those it needs to be very first person it, it, you need to be in the shoes of the person to get their perspective. And for lack of a better term, we're constantly in the, the wide angle shot. It, we're seeing, yeah. we're getting both of their conversations. We're tracking both characters in the same time again from, so you're not, you're not sticking with just one. So, but because because that's the 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 direction they took this in is trying to give a perspective they missed the third not that I needed to told a third time but we didn't get the perspective where okay she, they they were recovering the stunner from the plane or from the hangar where Chris Christopherson discovers it right that creates a time quake, but we didn't get the story from their perspective of what happened that would have initiated the need to go back for her to go and spend time with Chris Christopherson to get him to not go to the hangar, have that fail, and basically you've now double-backed on yourself twice and we've increased the time quake because you didn't accomplish what you set out to fix. We didn't get that perspective, and they were no good at trying to convey that. They did a terrible job of getting at that. No, absolutely. It was you, they told the story twice, but it wasn't interesting the first time, <laughs> and it 
was doubly as uninteresting the second time. <laughs> exactly. That's what it gets down to. And then they, I think they had the, uh, they had a great grasp of the mechanics from the perspective they wanted to tell it. Yes. And then ruined it and how they actually and how they, it And off. how they told it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, absolutely. This is a very rare instance where the substance was a lot more interesting than the style. I, I'd be curious, uh, and it would require a great deal of research to do this, so I apologize, but I'm wondering if telling a story like this and including the paradoxes and all that led to more tellings of what we see in time travel related now where um, I, I love their idea that time is still essentially linear mm-hmm. and therefore it will still roughly play out the same. But if you create a paradox, it endangers the timeline, causing physical damage, removal of things, all that instead of creating a branch, a, a new timeline. I would have liked to have seen that shown better than just, oh, everyone hang on. Things are going to shake a little bit. Right. I would have liked to have seen some... Um, Total set scenery change. Uh, some consequences. Some some people just suddenly blinking out of existence and no one... Or, or changing. You know, the cast actually... You know, minor characters or something completely changing and no one batting an eye. Uh, well, the council, the weird, the weird council uh, in, in a jar, you know, uh, right out of Futurama or something, <laughs> you know, suddenly those characters are different without anyone noticing. Well, we, the audience, see it. Right. We, the audience, see it. Uh, I would even give them credit if the time travelers see it. Oh, because they're somehow. Sure. They, immune, they're they're yeah. the one. They're the people out of time. So they're the ones in, in the. In the passing through, when the it, it, theoretically the quake should happen the instant that they've changed something. So by right. the time they cross back through the portal again, that quake should have already come through. In mm-hmm. which case, every time they come back through the portal and they've done something wrong, they're coming back to a new version of the future, and that could have been a fun element. I don't want to go too far down the uh <laughs> the rabbit hole uh there was a british show called prime evil mm-hmm. that dealt with these uh portals that would open up they seemed to be like natural occurrences or something like that and a team was put together to investigate and these portals were time portals and they were letting dinosaurs into the present and there was a season finale where one of the characters went through one of the portals something happened and when he came back through the portal, like half the cast had changed, and he didn't knew he didn't know who a lot of the people were. The or the there was one character that was the same person, but a completely different version. character. Yeah, yeah, a different version. So she he he didn't know who she was. Was that idea? It was the 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 what was it? The, the butterfly effect sort of thing, where you know he comes back and. Yeah, a lot of the same things happen, but suddenly he's in a completely different world he's unfamiliar with, and he has to sort of figure out how to uh, how to survive now and, and and figure this stuff out. 
Well, and, and and actually, when we get to the the actual movie, the butterfly effect, mm-hmm. we will see a lot more of that kind of notion. That's a series too. I think we'll have to uh, primeval or something. Primeval? We'll, probably we'll have to maybe watch the premiere or the first couple episodes or something and talk about it at a future time this year. That's uh, that's good. I was trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to talk about Millennium. I don't think so. I think we hit all the highs and lows. Well, we do have a few reviews from the time. Sure. Good. Excellent. Uh, we're just going to hit it out of the ballpark right away. Uh, there's one uh, we have found from uh, TV Guide. Um, can't seem to see a uh, anybody to give immediate credit to this particular, so it's just from TV Guide. Um, but the opening two uh, sentences really sum this up. Uh, they say, an underdeveloped script, anemic direction, and pacing, uninspired production design, and miscasting of the two leads lead roles undermine some intriguing ideas and characters in Millennium. Despite its many deficiencies, however, this sci-fi brain teaser with love story elements is not entirely without interest. Uh, everything I wanted, I, I mentioned and brought up, I thought of before I read this review. <laughs> <laughs> it hits it on the head. It just managed to hit it on the head in 1989. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It pretty much in two lines summed up everything we just spent the last 45 minutes. <laughs> Uh, I, I can't help but giggle at the the, the opening review. Uh, that we also found a Los Angeles Times review by Kevin Thomas from August 26th of 1989. And it starts a movie review. Millennium goes on forever. <laughs> Millennium is a hopelessly tedious time travel fantasy that represents the all-too-typical mediocrity of the commercial Canadian cinema. <laughs> so, that last little bit is interesting. Yes. Uh, talking about Canadian cinema, I'm assuming he was referring to the fact this was probably filmed in Vancouver or someplace similar. 1989 would have probably been just sort of the beginning of the movement of major motion pictures and television going to Canada. Yeah. And now that's very commonplace. Yeah, uh, actually, filming locations for this would have been uh, Toronto, Ontario. Okay. Uh, but yes, uh, filming in Canada now is ubiquitous. Uh, it has been a... This, this would have probably been around the time that the march from Hollywood had left the the California area for the most part and headed north. Nowadays, in 2022 when there's actual filming. I, I'm going to say there's more filmed in Canada than in Hollywood. Canada and Georgia. Yeah. Can't escape that damn Georgian peach. <laughs> so I think it's funny that uh, they, they took this moment in time to to make commentary about Canada. It could work. That's the thing. I'm looking at this movie. I'm watching this movie, and we're sitting here discussing it. And I'm talking, and I'm thinking, it could work. You could take this same plot. I think you could make it work. You go through another, just one more rewrite and a, and a stronger cast, you could make this work. Yeah, as we were discussing, I mean, this is just a... To- this is a made-for-TV cast. Uh, it, it, a made-for-TV for that era. This is a made-for-TV from the 70s era cast. Yeah. 
and some of the made-for-TV movies we got better performances out of than we got out of this. Uh, and knowing some of the actors that are involved and some of the things that they've been involved in, is it the acting or is it the uh, the writing and directing? Like, you have potentially decent actors here. If you had given them the proper motivation and script, maybe you might have gotten more. Maybe. I still think you need someone better than Chris Christopherson. He is so one note through the entire film. Uh, he's... Yeah, are, like, are, you, are you excited? Are you curious? Are you happy? I, I can't tell. And his reaction to falling for Cheryl Ladd in this is so dry. Like, yeah. like, this is essentially a one-night stand on a business trip for him. And he's talking about taking her away and going on some vacation with her. Right, <laughs> and, 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 and he's prepared to jump into the millennium uh, with, with her as well, but we don't have any motivation for that. There's no... We don't get a sense of why that should have happened. No. Oh, but... Since, since we're on the development of the relationship and before we really wrap this up, I, I there is one thing that bugged me so much during this movie um, because they did this entire thing to set up one meaningless gag. And we didn't get into the fact that apparently it's so polluted in the future that that all of the time travelers are forced to smoke heavily so that essentially what their lungs are used to in the future is they can mimic that in the past by just constantly smoking. Mm -hmm. um, but apparently in the future, our time-traveling heroines don't have to put out a cigarette like any normal human being ever would. They just chuck them into the air and... Some random laser disintegrates them from existence. That was so stupid. Why that needed to be there. And I, I'm getting to the why it needed to be there. Uh, it's just stupid no. as hell. They did that entirely so that Cheryl Ladd's character, while eating dinner with Chris Christopherson, in the middle of smoking, and when it is pointed out, I've never seen anybody smoke and eat at the same time, she chooses to get rid of the cigarette and just hurls it over the wall just so that we could have one little... <laughs> for for yeah. the fact that she unwittingly chucked her cigarette probably into somebody's lap. And like, mm -hmm. like, you had to do that for that one little gag? Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the whole laser beam destroying the cigarette thing was unnecessary i'm gonna just, i'm just gonna round it back up apparently we had <laughs> we we had an entire team focused on how to destroy cigarettes at will instead yeah. of figuring out how to clean up the atmosphere <laughs> right <laughs> yep uh, as i said another rewrite you take a good concept and then you put in all of this ill-conceived stuff and it hurts. While we're on the subject, I, I posted, the, I was watching the film and it was going to be the subject of the next episode. Got a couple comments and one, uh, I think it was uh, Chris Cree 
pointed out that she really appreciated Cheryl Ladd's future hair. I replied to her and said, yeah, I, I think that alone could be considered a special effect. <laughs> Apparently, uh, we know the source of most of their troubles. It's the sheer amount of hairspray that went into holding yes. Cheryl Ladd's hair up. Yeah, it was the Aquanet holding up that hair. She yes. collapsed the ozone layer all by herself. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is going to do it for Millennium. I was just going to say, you know, seek it out, watch it yourself, let us know what you think. I don't know if I'd even recommend that. I. <laughs> okay, it's not totally without merit to watch. It's just go in informed. <laughs> yes, exactly. We've already told you that it it needed work. I mean, there is a lot to like about it. It just. Just remember, this is not the end. This is not the beginning of the end. It is the end of the beginning. So that's going to do it. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another uh, episode. Until then, thanks very much for listening, everybody. Bye. See ya.